Next Chapter Podcasts. In the small German town of Herzog and Elrock, bombs are exploding in the night sky. The year is 1943, and at this point in the Second World War, air raids like this one are a common occurrence. Many citizens of the town, or at least the lucky ones, have bomb shelters in the basement of their homes. Husband and wife Rudolf and Friedel Dossler are two such lucky residents. They huddle together beneath their three-story split-level home, a home which sat atop a hill, almost lording over the town. After all, Rudy, as he is better known, and his younger brother Adolf are the biggest employers in Herzog and Alrock. The air explodes around them. But as frightening as the violence above is, it is nothing compared to the devastation that is about to take place in the room with them. The shelter doors open, and in walks Adolf, better known as Adi, and his wife, Kata, who share the Dossler home along with the family business. Seemingly referring to the munitions blasting away over their heads, Adi makes a remark that will go down in myth and unsubstantiated legend. In fact, to this day, people cannot be certain whether he said the following words or Rudolph did. The bastards are here again. And with that, a bomb has seemingly been set off inside the small sanctuary. Even though Germany is at war with nearly every other country on Earth and the Allied air raids are a routine part of life, Rudolf Dossler will prove what nearly everyone has come to learn in the age of social media, eight decades later. No matter the external events happening in the world, you can always make something about yourself. Supposedly, Rudy is convinced the remark is directed at himself and his wife. You see, this fuse was lit some time ago. Leading up to this moment, tensions had only been growing between the two couples in the Dossler household. So Rudy, excuse the pun, detonates with rage. Adi, according to myth, tries to explain the meaning of this statement, but it is too late. As a result, what will start as a rift between two brothers who own a mid-sized German shoe factory will turn into a rivalry that will divide a town, reshape the way that athletic shoes are sold around the world, and create the modern sneaker business as we know it today. Here's the story of the Dossler brothers. I'm Bridget Todd, and this is Beef. End of World War I, years before the incident in the bomb shelter, Adi and Rudy Dossler returned home to their town of Herzog and Alrock after enduring 17 months in the muddy trenches of eastern France. At this point, the handsome, intelligent, and athletic brothers were in their 20s and looking to their future. So, using their experience in the war as guidance, they had an idea. Trench life was an abysmal, nihilistic ordeal. And if there was one thing the Dosslers took from this experience, it was... Nicer shoes would have been nice. The sons of a textile worker, Rudy and Adi set up a small shoemaking operation in their family home. To acquire materials to make their shoes, the brothers would scour the countryside for scraps of leather and other material that littered the devastated landscapes of the war. In the beginning, it was a perfect match of personalities. Adi Dossler was a quiet, somewhat withdrawn but obsessively compelled person whose only interest was creating the perfect athletic sneaker. He would tinker alone for days, 
rarely seeing anyone, in an effort to create a football shoe that he felt would revolutionize the sports world. And for all you NFL fans out there, I'm not talking about the gridiron. I'm talking about F-U-T-B-O-L, as in the World Cup or Manchester United. Rudolph, the elder by two years, was nothing like Adi. He was loud and gregarious. He loved the company of others and was known to stay up in the local pubs all night, drinking and telling stories with his fellow townspeople. He was the perfect salesman. In the decade that followed, having lived through an international conflict and begun a prosperous shoemaking business, the brothers appeared ready to take on the world. Yet for all their determination and skill, they were completely unprepared for the most powerful force to hit 1930s Germany, other than the Fuhrer, of course, an assertive woman. Adi Dossler married Kata Martz in 1934. Unlike Rudy's wife, Friedel, Kata was a modern woman of the 20th century. She regularly spoke her mind on all matters, even those related to the brothers' shoe company. And much to Rudy's dismay, she began to work at the small factory they had recently acquired. Friedel was a quiet woman who woke up every morning at 4 a.m. to make her husband a sausage breakfast, and whatever she knew about her husband's numerous infidelities, she never let on. Rudy was unprepared for a brave and outspoken woman in his factory, which he often reminded her was called the Dossler Brothers Sports Shoe Factory. Despite the early tensions, though, the brothers' partnership was beginning to thrive, and their biggest opportunity yet would present itself at the 1936 Olympic Games held in Nazi Germany in the form of American athletic phenom Jesse Owens. By the time Adolf Hitler had officially taken power in post-World War I Germany, both brothers had become voluntary members of the Nazi party. From all signs, it appeared that this decision was more pragmatic than it was ideological. In order to do business in fascist Germany, having high-ranking Nazi contacts was important. But what seemed to be an obvious decision at the time would come back to haunt both brothers. And it was a choice that would give this story its uniquely German character. So says Chris Silber, an Emmy-winning German filmmaker who co-wrote a series of two films in 2016 about the Dosslers, titled Rivals Forever. Every single German who was alive and present during World War II had to deal with, okay, what side do I fall in the story? Because there was an obvious good and bad. <laughs> when you're co-responsible for that much evil and that much, I mean, horror, then I think you start rewriting your biography in order to somehow be able to continue to live. So one version of that is, well, they also bombed our cities and destroyed all of our infrastructure and killed millions of us in the bomb cellars. We didn't choose Hitler. We didn't want this. Um, so I think we're even, we're quit. Like, 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 like don't come, come at us with the guilt conversation anymore or the other conversation is, well, Hitler wasn't all bad. <laughs> you didn't hear that much. But of course, that was also or at least the conversation of, well, I didn't know that I was doing anything wrong. Is everything that I've done now wrong just because it was under the wrong system? That conversation renewed itself, by the way, after the fall of communism. Exact same conversation, often with different moral conundrums attached. But, you know, that is something that I feel creates a lot of drama and a lot of conflict in families. Because some people will decide to rewrite their history. Well, when you do that, who knows the truth? Your family. Your parents, your siblings are going to say, come on, that's BS, don't tell me that. Like, we, we know exactly what you did. And so I think that's um, a, a, a very general German problem after the war. The people were struggling to paint themselves in the best possible light, to continue living, to continue having businesses and success and so on, or whatever it was that they wanted in life. 
and it puts them at odds with relatives, friends, and so on. In 1935, despite a complete Nazi takeover of the country, the only ideology the brothers fanatically adhered to was that of furthering their footwear company. By this point, Adi's designs for running and football shoes were years ahead of any other brands. Made to be lightweight and durable, any athlete competing in them would have an advantage over any other athlete wearing the heavier, old-fashioned, boot-like shoes of the times. The problem was making the public aware of how advanced their shoes were, thanks to two distinctions. The first was the two white leather stripes running down the side of the shoe, an early version of the three stripes that would become a branding icon. The second and more important distinction were the metal spikes at the bottom. These provided the wearer with better traction, a characteristic Adi would eventually incorporate into his football cleats, thus transforming that sport and its business forever. It was during the 1936 games that the brothers embarked on a publicity strategy unlike anything else that had come before it. After the fanfares of the Olympic opening comes the most amazing performance by America's black streak Jesse Owens in the 100 meters. The world's most superb runner makes the others look as if they're walking. Adi Dostler was convinced that Jesse Owens would win gold in the events he competed in. And despite him being an African-American in Hitler's Aryan fantasy land, Adi wanted Jesse to be wearing his shoes when it happened. Adi worked, as was his tradition, in isolation to create the perfect custom running shoes for the great athlete. He found Jesse Owens on the Olympic training grounds and, despite not speaking any English, gestured to Owens to try on his shoes. After doing a few laps in them, Owens was so amazed by their performance, he told the coaches that he wouldn't wear any other shoes. Despite the inherent risks of promoting their brand with an African-American in Nazi Germany, the gamble paid off. Owens won the gold in all of his events wearing the distinct shoes Adi had created. And to the surprise of even the Dossler brothers, Owens was cheered on by thousands of German citizens. So the company was thriving. But a major disruption was about to test the already tense dynamic of the brothers' partnership in the form of the Second World War. Ladies and gentlemen, we may be approaching a fateful hour. All night long, bulletins have been pouring in from Berlin, claiming that D-Day is here, claiming that the invasion of Western Europe has begun. Because of the national German war effort, the government informed the brothers they were only allowed to make 6,000 shoes a year, a steep departure from the 200,000 they were used to producing annually. Rudy claimed to have helped get his brother an indispensable exemption from military service due to his talent as an inventor of sorts, but he would come to regret this decision. As the brothers struggled to keep their business afloat during the war, Rudy became increasingly convinced that Adi and Kata were conspiring to take over the business entirely. Imagine you have two brothers who from childhood always are competing. At first, it seems like a game. It's, it's an athletic competition they have with each other. They're literally racing each other from childhood. At the same time, growing up in an env environment where th there seems to be a strong drive in, 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 in not being the simple shoemaker or, or cobblers that their father must have somehow instilled in them. And so those two things combined turn these two guys to enemies, probably for the lack of tools of communication that we have today for the lack of even understanding psychology and the deeper meanings of things that happen in our 
souls and in our subconscious or whatever, they just end up um, fighting a lot and saying, you know what, after this, I don't want to talk to you anymore. Who knows? I mean, there's, there's no, what is it, biology or, or, or fate that just has people come out very differently and not having the tools to communicate that, to bridge that, because that's just the time they lived in. And then I do believe there's, and honestly, I mean, I might uh, make some enemies with that, but I do believe there's quite a lot of pettiness in German culture. Uh, I grew up with a very petty style. And of course, um, to this day, that seems to be a thing in German culture, sort of uh, uh, a narrow-mindedness and, 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 and a lack of just being able to just sort of for social, for sake of social peace to, have a friendliness to start things with, but it's, it's always like, I have big problems and we need to talk about these problems. <laughs> it can be a turnoff, okay? <laughs> the mood in the split-level home of the two families became increasingly hostile. As the war dragged on, what was initially expected to be a quick military victory by most Germans became a national nightmare as more and more men were conscripted and sent to the front, regardless of age and physical condition. In January of 1943, Rudy was drafted into the German army and his mind was consumed by bitterness and paranoia. He even believed his younger brother and sister-in-law had engineered the situation so they could take over the company in his absence. In a letter to Adi, he wrote, quote, I will not hesitate to seek the closure of the factory so that you be forced to take up an occupation that will allow you to play the leader and, as a first-class sportsman, to carry a gun. When Rudy left for military service, he was determined to survive not for his wife and children, but so that he could return to his factory and prevent his supposedly scheming brother from taking over. The effort would prove almost as dangerous to his life as the war itself. Ever heard of Stoicism? Chances are, if you have, you've heard of Stoicism with a lowercase s and not Stoicism with an uppercase s. Lone wolves, no emotions, antisocial behavior, cold, indifference, all that is Stoicism with a lowercase s. Stoicism with an uppercase s is the ancient Greek philosophy and virtue ethics framework that centers on service to the cosmopolis, to include your family, friends, community, and planet, and the development of a good moral character. My name is Tanner Campbell, and I'm the host of Practical Stoicism, a three times a week podcast teaching Stoic principles and concepts to anyone interested through the exploration of texts and deep dives into various moral topics. You can find Practical Stoicism where you're already listening to podcasts by searching for Practical Stoicism or by going to stoicismpod.com. I invite you to give it a listen today. You just might like it. After Rudy's departure, Adi was soon forced by the German government to cease making shoes and begin making rockets. Adi did everything possible to retain as many employees as he could, so that their job status would prevent them from military conscription. Earlier in the war, during a power struggle between the two brothers, Rudy had refused to hire their sister Marie's two sons, simply because Adi suggested it. As a result, the sons were drafted and later killed in the fighting, for which Marie would never forgive Rudy. And as Adi struggled to keep his own employees, who were more experienced in making shoes than rockets, he also accepted Russian prisoners of war to work in his factory. This would eventually be a point of contention between the Allied occupation forces, who saw it as slave labor, and Adi, who believed they were treated fairly and humanely. Then, on April 4, 1945, 
a surreal scene unfolded at the funeral of Rudy and Adi's father, Christoph Dossler. As the funeral began, Adi was shocked to see the return of a disheveled and exhausted Rudy, who had been away at his Polish military outpost for two years. The circumstances behind his arrival were unclear. Was he there for the funeral, to resume his position at the factory, or had he simply had his fill of the carnage and deserted? Whatever Adi thought was irrelevant, because the local Gestapo had determined that Rudy had indeed deserted. They arrested Rudy the same day he returned home and sent him to a prison in Nuremberg. What happened next was a truly harrowing sequence of events. After being interrogated for two weeks in a Nuremberg prison, Rudy was sentenced to be transported to the concentration camp in Dachau. However, the Nazi officials who sentenced him had no intention of Rudy or the other prisoners accompanying him ever reaching their destination. The driver escorting them was given strict orders to shoot all the prisoners before reaching the concentration camp. He disregarded that order, though still continued to drive to Dachau, but they never arrived. Along their journey, they were stopped by Soviet liberation forces who ordered the driver to release the prisoners. Rudy had miraculously escaped execution and imprisonment in one of the war's most horrific concentration camps. Instead of seeing this as an opportunity to re-examine his life and begin a process of appreciation for existence, he determined with a steely obsession to return home and reclaim his factory. Rudy returned home to a town under bombardment by Allied forces, where we began our story. And by this point, the relationship between the two brothers seemed irreconcilable, although the final nails in the coffin of their partnership had yet to be driven in. The last hammer blow would occur in the form of the American forces that shortly afterward occupied the brothers' town of Herzogenaurach. When the American troops arrived, one of their duties was to gather and arrest the worst Nazis of the town. Information gathered by an anonymous source and given to the American investigators implicated that Rudy was a member of the infamous Nazi secret police, known as the SS. This was only partly true. Before he abandoned it, Rudy's unit had been mostly decimated by Soviet forces and therefore was absorbed into the SS. Rudy was arrested again, this time by the Americans, and interrogated about his role within the SS. During the interrogation, perhaps due to an investigator's implication or possibly a fabrication in his own mind, Rudy became convinced that Adi and Kata were the anonymous sources responsible for his arrest. In what turned into an almost laughable game of who's the bigger Nazi, Rudy fabricated a narrative that Adi was a die-hard ideological fascist who enthusiastically volunteered to make weapons for the Nazi army. When Adi was taken in for questioning and told what his brother had said, he in turn accused Rudy of being an ideologue who made all factory employees swear loyalty to Hitler. This back and forth went on for nearly a year, while the factory languished in a kind of purgatory, as neither brother was allowed to resume operations during the investigation of their purported war crimes and profiteering. After a year, with no sufficient evidence and a new mandate by the United States Army focusing on only detaining the most dangerous of former Nazis, the investigation into the brothers was closed. But the damage was done. Their relationship had been destroyed by a combination of paranoia, jealousy, and the desperate need to survive by any means necessary, even if that meant throwing your own brother under the proverbial bus. So the factory reopened, but operations would certainly not resume as normal. As Rudy and his wife began the process of moving out of their shared home overlooking the factory, a decision was also made to split the company. Rudy would start a new shoe company across town, and any employees of the original company that wished to were invited to join him in his new endeavor. Unsurprisingly, 
most of the sales department that Rudy formerly headed, a third of the joint company staff, left with him. This left a unique problem for both brothers. Rudy's new company, which he named Puma, had an expert sales force to sell his shoes. Yet, it lacked the expert craftsmanship that could create a product to rival Audi's. And Audi, who abbreviated his first and last name to retitle the company Adidas, had the superior shoes, but no sales force to sell them. But Naomi Braithwaite, a professor of fashion marketing, management, and communication at Nottingham Trent University's School of Art and Design, who has written extensively about shoe design, argues that the brother's schism didn't just present professional challenges and personal problems. It also opened up a whole realm of opportunity for their businesses. Rivalry is is important for the industry in so many ways because it creates competition. Competition is, is tough, but it's it's also healthy because it, it creates uh, desire, it creates opportunities for innovation. Yes, they are in competition, they are in rivalry, and it probably is, it is a tension, but they also do have their own distinct histories and their own distinct, you know, identities and iconic products, which are very different. And I guess, in a sense, sets them you know, their own individuality as brands. So I think they can sit together in the market, but there will be competition, there will be rivalry. And of course, there will always be one that has the slight edge over the other because that's the nature of consumer culture in many ways. Rudy struck the first blows by hiring cheap shoemakers to make subpar shoes, although still superior to most athletic shoes of the time. And with an experienced sales force, he began selling his Puma football cleats to various professional football clubs throughout Germany. He even sued his brother in a bit of irony not lost on Adi for patent infringement, despite the fact that it was Rudy who had clearly stolen Adi's designs. At this point, the town of Herzog and Alrock was divided, like the Sharks and the Jets of West Side Story or LA's infamous Bloods and Cribs. It was estimated that for every family in Herzog and Alrock, at least one family member worked for one of the two shoe companies. The town is divided by a river, and on each side of the river were the Puma and Adidas factories. Segregated pubs for Adidas and Puma's employees began to form all over the town, which acquired the nickname the Town of Bent Necks, because everyone would turn their heads to see what brand of shoes everyone else was wearing. That way, they could determine if they were friend or foe. However, despite the early successes of Puma, something would soon occur that would forever tilt the balance of power in Adidas's favor. Deutschland im Endspiel der Fußballweltmeisterschaft. Das ist eine Riesensensation. The 1954 World Cup in Bern, Switzerland, was the first World Cup in which the new country of West Germany was allowed to participate, though they were not considered to have much of a chance in the competition. The coach of the West German team, Sepp Herberger, was looking to outfit his team with Puma cleats, which were the most popular at the time with the German football clubs. However, in a meeting between Sepp and Rudi, something went terribly wrong. The details are still muddy to this day, but Rudy, who could often be rude and petulant, appeared to insult Sepp and the West German national team, yet another of his lasting regrets. Still in need of shoes for his athletes, Herberger met with Adi, and the two hit it off. They were both quiet, dedicated joggers who shared a common obsession over their crafts. Adi offered to supply the team with his shoes, and Sepp gratefully accepted. Then, to the shock of the country and quite possibly the entire world, West Germany made it all the way into the finals of the World Cup. While making it to the finals was considered an enormous achievement, the West German team were still considered massive underdogs against the revered Hungarian team they were set to face. Unbeknownst to all of Germany, Hungary, and the entire world, though, 
the West German team had an ace up their sleeve. But it would require a miracle from on high. By halftime of the final match, West Germany was down 2-1. to one. Then the wonder of wonders occurred. It began to rain hard. Adi, who was not known to have been a religious man, might have actually prayed for this. In the West German locker room, Adi requested every player to take off their shoes, and then he took out a bag of metal spikes and screwed them into the bottom of every player's shoes. These spikes, which would form the basis of all future football cleats to come, would give the West German team much more traction in the wet grass and provide them with a massive advantage. West Germany capitalized on the advantage and mounted a 3-2 comeback win against the stunned Hungarians. In Germany, it's known as the miracle at Bern. Many German citizens felt the win was the first thing the Germans could be proud of in nearly three decades, since before the beginning of the First World War. Adi's contribution to the world title was considered so substantial that a statue of him was erected at Herzogenaurach football stadium. With most sports stadiums building statues to the most celebrated athletes of their teams, this type of honor for a shoemaker was unheard of. The West German win, which was the first World Cup final ever broadcast on international television, was the most decisive victory in what would be a four-decade-long battle between the two companies. The West German players achieved a miracle in front of an international audience, and they did it in the now three-striped Adidas shoes. As time went on, the two brothers continued to work obsessively over growing their companies. If the bitterness between them subsided, the two never reconciled. However, the day before his death after a short battle with cancer, Rudy called his brother Adi. The details of this conversation are unknown. If they made up, there is not much proof because four years later when Adi died, the two brothers had to be buried at opposite sides of the Herzogenalrock Cemetery. The rivalry between Rudy and Adi began a process that would eventually transform the shoe game into a multi-billion dollar industry dependent on star athlete endorsements. However, for all their success, Rudy and Adi still presided over what could be considered rather provincial businesses. It would be their sons who would continue the rivalry, turning the two German shoe companies into the mega corporate titans of the athletics business they are today. And after achieving more than their fathers could ever dream of, they would lose it all. But we'll continue with that part of the story next time on Beef. In a world where this idea of you can only win or lose, there's nothing in between. We can't all win together. Someone has to be beaten for me to win. In that mindset, a sibling rivalry might actually be helpful if you choose to do business in that way. Now, having said that, it's very important for me from a moral, from my own moral position to make it clear, which is a strong position, to say, well, there is a way for everyone to win. There is a way to do business differently where you don't need that kind of stuff and you should actually heal it before you get into this. But yeah, in their world, in their time and in the style they did things, it might have actually helped them. But do people, do, do those kind of like really aggressive business people really think about future generations as much? I mean, they, maybe they believe in their legacy but aren't they too busy in the everyday battles to really have a long-term vision? Beef is a production of Next Chapter Podcasts. This episode was written by James Levine with help from Ben Austin Docampo and Pete Musto, who also edited this episode. Our executive producer is show creator Jeremiah Tittle. Don't forget to subscribe to, rate, and review our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us to get the word out. I'm Bridget Todd. 
Thanks for listening to Beef, and remember to stay petty. Who knows how far it'll take you. Next Chapter Podcasts.